Welcome to season three of the Story Grid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer, following the Story Grid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years' experience. My name is Jari Bolander, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are four of my fellow certified Story Grid editors Valerie Francis, Anne Holly, Kim Kessler, and Leslie Watts. During season one and season two, we watched a movie each week from one of the 12 story grid content genres and then analyzed it using the editor's six core questions. We racked up 27 episodes, 27 global fool's cap worksheets, and 27 sets of extensive notes. That detailed content is available at storygrid.com resources. After all that, we decided to mix it up a bit and do some changes. So for season three, we're tackling some new material in a new way. Each week, one of us will propose a favorite movie that we think is a great example of a key story principle. That editor then has to make the case for their position with the help of a partner. They will advocate their case for why it's a great example of a story principle, while two of us will be the opposition and pick their argument apart. The moderator for the week will act as the judge and render a decision as to which group made the best case. Of course, you can argue, debate, and tell us how you would decide the case over at Twitter, at StoryGridRT. We wanted to mix it up a bit because we realized that a detailed discussion of a specific topic would be a great way to learn about story principles that Sean mentions in his book and his podcasts. Some of the story principles that we might be coming up for the examination this season include archetypical characters, strong hero's journey or virgin promise structure, stories that work in spite of breaking the structure, innovative obligatory scenes or conventions, the genre mashup that actually works, great combinations of genre, plot, and archetype. If you have some other story principles that you might want to go over, you can let us know by commenting on Twitter, at StoryGridRT, leaving us a voicemail, or commenting in the show notes. This week, our A-team is led by Valerie, who pitched Manchester by the Sea as a great example of a surprising but inevitable conclusion. This 2016 film was directed by Kenneth Logergan from his Oscar-winning screenplay. Valerie will be ably assisted by Leslie. Kim and Anne will be the B-team. Their job is to question whether the story principle is really well served by the movie, give some counterexamples, and help us all get to the bottom of what a surprising but inevitable conclusion really is, and how you can achieve it in your own story. Valerie is going to fly us quickly through the overall story structure by giving us the genre, beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff. As always, we'll post a completed Fool's Cap global worksheet for the movie in the show notes. All right, we just also want to let everyone know that this uh, movie does have some strong content, uh, specifically around uh, people passing away. So if you are going through a challenging time or get uh, triggered by that, uh, please note that we will be talking about that and to uh, plan appropriately. Uh, with that, Valerie, the floor is yours. Thanks, Jari. So the global genre... We'll talk more about it in a minute, most definitely, but we always start with genre, so it just seems to be right. (laughs) Um, I think this is a morality redemption story with a secondary genre of society domestic. The beginning hook is this. 
When Lee Chandler's brother dies, he learns that he's been named guardian of his 16-year-old nephew, Patrick. Lee must decide whether he'll accept guardianship or not. However, since he's a broken man, Lee is unable to make the decision and defers it to a later time. And in fact, he spends the rest of the film struggling with this very question. During the middle build, Lee looks after his nephew for the short term at least. But when his ex-wife, Randy, confesses that she still loves him, he must decide whether or not he will stay in Manchester permanently, as Patrick wants, or move to Boston. Once again, Lee defers making the decision. He gets drunk, starts a bar fight, and eventually breaks down. In the ending payoff, when Lee nearly starts a second house fire, he must finally decide whether he will continue to be Patrick's legal guardian, and if so, where they'll live. He makes arrangements with family friends to adopt Patrick so he can stay in Manchester while he moves back to Boston. All right. When, whenever we're tackling a key element of story, there's four kinds of questions that we want to look at. First of all, what does it mean for an ending to be surprising but inevitable? Why do writers want to include an ending that is surprising yet inevitable? Why is this an example of an ending that is surprising but inevitable? And how would you, as a writer, create that kind of ending in your own story? So first of all, what is it? Well, we all know what a surprise ending is. It's an ending that the audience doesn't see coming, right? When that happens, our minds reel back over the story and try to make sense of this unexpected conclusion. For an ending to be truly surprising yet inevitable, once it's revealed, the audience understands that the story couldn't have ended any other way. It makes perfect sense for the story and the characters and is completely satisfying. Now, I want to drop a little flag on the word satisfying because it's subjective. Some, like, for example, sometimes an audience wants a happily ever after but doesn't get it, even though happily ever after doesn't make sense for the story. The next question is, why do writers want to include an ending that is surprising yet inevitable in their stories? Well, it's really simple in my opinion. When it's done right, this kind of ending is a crowd pleaser. Stories that pull this off get talked about, and Manchester by the Sea definitely gets talked about. If the audience, whether this is a film or your, your reader, if your reader can see the end coming, they get bored really quickly, and they'll put your book down. You want to keep them guessing. You want to keep them problem solving all the way to the end. And when you have an ending that's surprising but inevitable, it feels really good at the end that the reader says to himself or herself, oh, I should have seen that coming, but I didn't. It's a gotcha moment and they're fantastic. All right. Why do I think that Manchester by the Sea has an ending that is surprising but inevitable? Leslie and I had a lot of fun uh, chatting about this because the, the way we structured this is that Leslie and I would come up with the argument for and then Anne and Kim got together and came up with an argument against just to kind of test it, just to, to push and pull these story principles and see how they really work and if they work and how we can make them better and what we can learn from them. So I think there's a few reasons, but essentially for me, they all boil down to one thing. The ending of this film is completely in line with the character of Lee Chandler, who is our protagonist. It wouldn't make sense for Lee to stay in Manchester and look after his nephew or bring his nephew back to Boston. Why do I say that? Well, when we first meet Lee, he's a, he's a broken man. 
In the scenes that lead up to the global inciting incident, which in this case is a phone call about his brother uh, having gotten ill and, and has been admitted to the hospital, the only emotion that Lee expresses is anger. He gets angry with one of the tenants that he works with, and he picks a fight in a bar. Interestingly, he ends the film with picking a fight in a bar as well. Nothing happens during the rest of the story that would ever justify his being able to function in Manchester as Patrick's guardian. This man is a hollow shell. And as he tells his ex-wife, Randy, toward the end of the middle build, there's nothing there, meaning he can't feel anything. The tragedy that he's gone through in the past has left him completely numb. Now, I should say here, if you haven't watched Manchester by the Sea, you should probably do that. And this, this episode will make a whole lot more sense to you because this is a bit of a departure. So we're chatting today as though you have seen this film already. And if you haven't watched it, then have a box of tissues with you because it's a tearjerker. The next time I'm going to recommend a comedy or something, I think. <laughs> okay. So even though Lee is a broken man, he's not evil. He's not a bad guy. He has made a tragic mistake. And you could argue, yes, it was stupid, but it was a mistake. He isn't evil. He's broken. He's guilt-ridden and he's definitely in pain. He was and is a loving father, son, brother, uncle, and husband. And what I find really fascinating is that he never ever denies responsibility for the accident. And the accident, I'll see if I can say this without bursting into tears. He inadvertently causes his home to burn down and his three very young children die in the fire. His uh, wife, Randy, makes it out and he is not in the house, so he also survives. But this is the tragedy that he is carrying around with him. Now, when he's, at, when he's with the police and they're asking him what happened, he does say that he started uh, a fire in the fireplace to keep his kids warm because the house was so cold and he's not able to turn on the central air because of Randy's breathing issues. But even though he says that as a fact, he never ever blames Randy for the accident. He takes complete responsibility for it. And when the police decide not to arrest, arrest him or charge him, he punishes himself. First, he tries to kill himself. He, he takes a gun from one of the police officers and is going to shoot himself in the head, except it, something happens with the gun, it jams or whatever. And they manage to get it away from him before he does himself any harm. And then he exiles himself from Manchester. So this is all backstory that is woven through the tale beautifully. Even though he knows he can't be Patrick's guardian, for example, he can't even remember where he parked the car. I mean, this is how out of it he is. He couldn't possibly be anyone's guardian. He can't look after himself. He still wants the best for his nephew, and he refuses to allow Patrick's mother to be his guardian because as broken as he is, she's worse. He does try to make it work, and he puts his own life on hold for a while to allow Patrick to finish uh, his uh, year at school in Manchester. And during those months, because his brother dies in the winter, so during those months from the winter to the spring, he is in Manchester and he's trying to figure out what is the best for his nephew. If he wanted to move back to Manchester, he certainly could. I mean, there's even a potential love interest there for him and he recognizes that. There's a woman named Sandy who is Patrick's girlfriend's mother. She's a perfectly lovely woman who is interested in him. And even though he knows this, he can't even speak to her. He's not trying to be rude, but he can't keep a polite conversation going. He's that destroyed inside. 
Interestingly, throughout the story, Lee keeps trying to tell people that he isn't capable of being what they think he should be, or perhaps what they need him to be, because his brother Joe needs and wants him to be the guardian of his son. George and Janine, who are family friends, also want him to be the guardian. Lee keeps saying he can't do that. He can't be Patrick's guardian. Randy wants to have lunch with him. He can't have lunch. He can't make small talk with Sandy's mother, nor can he, when they do eventually meet Patrick's mother, he can't stay for lunch. He can't even stay to talk. He isn't the man he was before his children died. Now, everyone in the story wants what's best for Patrick. The thing is, they have different definitions of what's best. And in a redemption story, we're really used to seeing a character go from, like Scrooge, right, is a typical, probably the quintessential redemption story. So he's a black hat at the beginning, and he's a white hat at the end. And when we meet someone who's like that at the beginning of a story, we expect that eventually he's going to get it together and do the thing that is right according to our expectations. And Joe, George, Janine, the community all expect that Lee is going to somehow get his act together and be able to be the guardian of Patrick at the end. And since this is a, a family story as well, we expect to see a family reunite at the end. And that doesn't happen either. And the key for me here is, although everyone wants what's best for Patrick, it's a different definition of what's best. Lee is a shell of a man at the beginning of the story. In fact, he's a complete mess. His children have died because of him, and he nearly causes a second fire in Patrick's house. How could he possibly be a positive role model and a guardian? Patrick does, in fact, have a much better chance of becoming a fully formed, independent, and well-adjusted adult with George and Janine. George is a better role model, and together he and his wife will provide stability for Patrick during this very difficult time as he copes with the loss of his father and tries to stay on an even keel during his teen years, which are challenging enough as they are. Horrible. <laughs> teen right, years so are it's a, <laughs> listen, I'm telling you, uh, you know, I had to watch, I, well, I obviously had watched this film before I recommended it. Right. And then in analyzing this, I watched it three or four more times. And even though I knew what was going to happen, I still went through all kinds of tissues. It yeah. is a tearjerker. Tear and at jerker. one point I thought, who the heck recommended this movie? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, holy cow. Yeah, anyway, that's totally. what I've come up with. Okay. So anyway, that's I throw a, it open to the rest of the field to see yeah. what you all think. So Very, we all expect that he's going to get it together. <laughs> but in the end, we realize that he is so messed up. There's no way that even though he does redeem himself by doing what's best for Patrick, it's not the right. way we expected him to do it. Yeah, it's just, okay, well. We'll, we'll get to the, the opposition now. Uh, that was a very compelling case, Valerie. So, Kim, why don't you start it off and let's get the, get the party started, so to speak. Okay. So, there aren't any parties in this movie. So, what do you mean? <laughs> this, is, well, that's, <laughs> this was the anti party movie. Sorry. The anti party movie. Yeah, the anti -party. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so our main contention with the idea that this is surprising yet inevitable and therefore a satisfying ending is that the story arc for us does not feel like redemption, which is what the audience is waiting for. I would say not only is what the, the characters in Lee's life are, are hoping for, but it's what the audience is expecting as well. So Lee's choice at the end does not feel like sacrifice to put the needs of others above one's own. 
Lee never wanted to be the guardian. He states that very clearly at the outset, and then he maintains it throughout. So in the spectrum of life values for a morality story, the ending feels to me more like the negative value of self-interest or self-preservation, which is a step up from selfishness, or even maybe the neutral value where the self-interest aligns with the needs of others. So the fact that he needs to not be in Manchester aligns with the fact that Patrick needs someone else to be his guardian. And so they both make out okay in the end, but it doesn't really feel like sacrifice. It doesn't feel like getting to those upper realms of the life values like we would see in a redemption story. However, that is not to say that the ending doesn't work. It just feels like it's creating a story arc that's so rare. The audience isn't primed for it. I wasn't primed for it so to speak. Manchester by the Sea seems to fall into what I am positing as this rare internal genre called the degeneration plot. Norman Friedman describes it like this. A character change for the worse occurs when we start with a protagonist who was at one time sympathetic and full of ambition and subject them to some crucial loss which results in their utter disillusionment. They then have to choose between picking up the threads of their life and starting over again or giving up their goals and ambitions altogether. If they choose the former course, we have what may be termed the resignation plot. But since I know of only one such plot, Uncle Vanya, I have not reserved a special section for it. Chekhov indeed seemed to have been obsessed with the problem of how a person can live after all his ideals, hopes, and goals have been shattered. But he most frequently had his protagonist choose the latter course, as in Ivanov and the Seagull. So that's just a direct quote from Norman Friedman's The Form of Plot. And when we found that description in Friedman, I think you and I both said, whoa, that fits this movie perfectly. Yeah, it really captured the essence of what Lee went through and what we feel. And at the end, when you go, yeah, you're right, he can't do it. And you get it, right? We don't like it, but we get it. And, right. and just how different of an experience that story is from the redemption of him finding a way through the pain, right? It almost plays out more like disillusionment that would happen in the past and in the backstory. And, and then now it seems like in the present, we experience a form of testing surrender. It's not so much about um, him gaining or losing his inner moral compass as much as it feels like gaining or losing his will to live. And, and by live here, I don't mean like, it's not that they actually die. They've already died metaphorically. And he cannot bring himself to pursue life anymore um, in all its many rich and varied forms. So we experience, you know, our feeble short range hopes that he's gonna be able to do this thing. They materialize into our long range fears of you're right, he can't and he never could have. And why did we expect anything else? So. The thing here is we don't have a tidy equivalent for this in our story grid index of genres. Sean often chooses to keep his systematic explanations really simple, universal as possible. He tries not to overcomplicate things because story can get really complicated and, and he knows that better than anyone. So he always tries to keep it as clean as we can so that we have a place of entry into it. So I would posit here that there are some additional subgenres of testing, similar to how there are in action. You know, we have adventure and we have epic, et cetera, et cetera. And within those, we have several other plot devices or forms underneath those. So it feels like like maybe what Norman Friedman embraced was that there are these other additional subgenres of morality and other nuances within those arcs. 
So here, what Ann and I in our discussion, what we kind of landed on, you know, because Lee doesn't change. He maintains his um, mantra of, I can't do this, you guys. Don't expect otherwise. So here, what we kind of said, and this is kind of silly, but he feels like the anti-status admiration character, like Maximus in Gladiator. So Maximus doesn't change either. He maintains his code of strength and honor. But here, it's like instead of having, you know, strength and honor, we have broken and resigned. And that is Lee. He's broken and resigned from the beginning to the end. And he just, you know, he tries to do the best he can, but he is incapable of changing. So in Manchester by the Sea, you know, Lee, he never wavers on these convictions. The situation is unfixable. He has this phrase at the end, you know, when he's breaking the news to Patrick, his nephew, I can't be your guardian. He says, I can't beat it. I can't beat it. And, and we understand. And like I said, you know, we don't like it. We want this to be a story that you can overcome anything with love and with family and with support and with time and all that stuff that we need. But the story is important in that there are times when maybe you can't. And when things truly are broken and it's not so much about getting better as much as, you know, continuing to try to do the best you can in spite of all of those things. The fact that Lee is still living and he would have had multiple opportunities to end his own life. He's not being supervised all the time and he doesn't and he is still here. So there is something to that. So all of that, what does that have to do with the argument about surprising yet inevitable conclusion? It's not to say that the storytellers here didn't do their job or provide a valid setup for their ending. It's that the story that they're telling is rare. You know, Friedman found one of them. And the pattern is not as ingrained in us in a modern audience as, say, redemption. And so the interpretation of the meaning of the events gets cloudy because as readers and viewers, our expectations are for something else. Our hope, I think, it gets inflated because of all of the redemption stories that we've seen. And it's interesting because, you know, the film doesn't really try to get our hopes up. It's painfully honest about how irreversible Lee's condition is. But yet we still do hope. There's one scene that we noted. And in going back through, I realized this is much later in the movie than it felt like. So there's the scene when um, there's these rifles. It's his brother's rifles in a gun case. And it's a beautiful gun case, beautiful rifles. And Lee's looking at them. And because we've already seen the moment in the police station where Lee steals the police officer's gun and tries to shoot himself, when we see the rifles and him looking at the rifles, our chests tighten. You know, we're like, oh, no, what is Lee going to do? He's going to end it. But then the nephew comes in within a few seconds and we're like, oh, okay, thank goodness Patrick's there. Nothing bad's going to happen. And then Patrick makes a joke, which the jokes in this are really fun because they're dry humor to offset all of the pain and agony. Patrick says, who are you going to shoot, me or you? And it's kind of a good break in the tension. And then Lee suggests that they sell the rifles to pay for the new boat motor. And Patrick's like, that's a really great idea. And we're like, yes, this is what we're talking about, like finding a way forward. And I think at that moment, we really do think that he can do it or that he's trying, that he's willing to try. And so it's these kinds of moments that I think as an audience, you know, they really set us up for a redemption that doesn't occur um, because, you know, we can't help it. Our, our hearts and minds are so primed for that. And so this is surprising, but his consistency to his broken and resigned, it makes his inability to change inevitable. But what we wonder here is, is that the same as satisfying? And Anne, over to you for that. Well, for me, a surprising but inevitable ending is uniquely satisfying, and I don't think it's a bad idea to 
include the word satisfaction in there because also surprising and inevitable are kind of subjective too. It depends on how much you notice as an audience member or a reader going through the story and how much it, how much you can relate to it and that type of thing. You know, whether the ending lands is just going to depend on personal taste uh, to a very large extent. So, you know, there are some some types of endings that are more universally popular than others, as, as I think we all agree. I think we instinctively feel where sort of on the bell curve of popularity, a story falls. And, you know, I personally like a lot of really easy, big action movies like the Marvel movies. And I know when I'm enjoying a movie like that, that I'm right at the top of the bell curve with every, you know, almost everybody else. There are people who really hate those movies, but really they do well in theaters because they're easy and they're popular. And that's great. But I also like really obscure, weird, you know, difficult, strange movies. And when I do, I'm aware that I'm part of a smaller group down on the slopes or out on the edges of the bell curve somewhere. So I think, uh, Kim, what you say about the rarity of this genre and how we're not really primed for it, that explains how the movie didn't feel satisfying to a lot of people. Now, how many people, I don't know, but I know that user reviews for this movie on like IMDb and Amazon are in the kind of three out of five star range, although critics loved it and it definitely deserved the Oscars that it was nominated for and won. It was a very, very good movie. I don't, I have no argument with that. But I think there's a distinction between intellectual satisfaction and that more visceral, emotional pleasure. And that distinction isn't a distinction of merit or worth or how good a person is or how smart they are or anything like that. It's a distinction of core emotion in the story. And core emotion comes down to what the reader wants to feel at the end of this type of story. So for instance, if it's a performance story, I expect to just have that stand up and cheer, yay, feeling at the end of a, of a movie like Billy Elliot. And it's a very popular, satisfying, crowd-pleasing story type. Um, so is, you know, yay, she beat the bad guys at the end of Wonder Woman. But moving down the popularity slope a little bit on either side of the bell curve, it depends on the state of the culture at a given time. And it may be that we're moving into, you know, difficult times where this type of Manchester by the sea, sort of shocking and thought provoking and somewhat depressing ending is what we need as a culture. I don't know. But there are all kinds of, you know, I personally like the cathartic cleansing feeling of a tragic love story like Brokeback Mountain a lot. Love that movie. Or this sort of, wow, that's really deep. Uh, that feeling that you get at the end of a movie like a worldview revelation story like Arrival, which we discussed last season. So I ended up in this movie with this sort of shocked, thoughtful, shaken feeling that I didn't go into the movie wanting or looking for. And I don't normally seek that sort of feeling out when I go to see a movie or when I choose a book to read. So I want to just wind this up by saying that writers should absolutely write the kind of story that they have in their hearts to write. But at the same time, we, we all as writers need to be aware of that bell curve of popularity and, and understand that your chosen genre and how it ends, what its core emotion is, is going to fall somewhere on that bell curve and yours may not be at the top if you're not writing, you know, really, really popular action performance type stories. The likely reaction of readers and the word of mouth and so forth is going to drop down the sides farther and farther as you get to more and more difficult kinds of endings. And I think that's okay. You just need to accept and write your story as truly and as well as you can, given 
that you aren't writing the most popular kind of happy ending romance or something. So all of that said, I certainly feel like this movie is something that I will not forget anytime soon, if ever. I'm just not totally sure it's something that I really want in my memory. I just I wanted to make one more comment. I have what's been thinking about ways that the story could be tweaked or changed, and would that change the emotional experience, this core emotion that we feel at the end? And I was wondering if they'd played it a little more true to form of a, a testing surrender story where the protagonist must fight to you know, maintain their will only to give it up at the end, if that would have been more satisfying. And I think what we would have wanted to see is he does say he's going to try and he tries to make other arrangements and he puts on a good face, you know, or attempts to rise and do the sacrifice, which he, he never does. And I just wonder if that would have felt different if he would have, you know, tried to make arrangements for Patrick to stay close to his school or or whatever, you know, then he's like, you know, I absolutely can't. And and I think we would have said, you know, we get it. And I just wonder if that feeling of seeing him attempt to rise, if that would have made us feel differently at the end when he can't do it. But like Anne said, it's not satisfying in the way that I hoped or the way that I would seek out or even maybe the way that I would execute the story. But yeah, it, it certainly stays with you. And I think we all want a story that does that. Well, thank you for that, Anne and Kim. Now for the rebuttal, Valerie and Leslie, take it away. Some of the things that I want to talk about in, in rebuttal are, you know, when I'm get to the bottom of the genre and then also talk about satisfying as a technical matter as opposed to something that's more subjective. The first proposition I would say is that everything in this movie is intentional. The artistic choices that the writer, who is also the director, made to pull this off are very close paying attention and it shows. And so you're able to pull off a really subtle ending to this very complex problem that doesn't feel Hollywood happy, but feels nonetheless, this is A, the right thing to do, and B, the surprising yet inevitable ending. So with that proposition in mind, I would say that the specific language that Lee uses is not one of, I'm not going to do this. I don't want to do this. It is, I can't do this. We might be imprecise when we're talking about things out in the world, but as Anne often says, stories are not real life, characters are not real people. So the specific language that Lee uses there, I think, is very indicative of, I would like to, I want to be able to rise to the challenge, I can't. So there's a suggestion that he doesn't change. But what I would say is that in the beginning, he is at this utter disillusionment, that he is at resignation, which is, it's not acceptance. Like there's a difference between resignation, this is the way it is, and that sucks in a way. And this is the way it is, and I'm going to make a conscious choice. And so to me, what is happening is that when the earlier tragic event happened with his family, Lee ran. In this instance, the contrast is he's not running away. He is making a conscious choice to walk away because that is what is best for his nephew. There are a couple of other things that I think are contrary to the idea of the degeneration plot 
We can't really characterize Lee as someone who is full of ambition, either before the tragic accident, after the tragic accident, or before or after his brother's death. And then I would also say that the story doesn't represent a change for the worse, that he is better off, that everyone is better off by the end of the story. We don't necessarily like the result, but everyone is better off. So to me, in this way, Lee is choosing a third way, right? There's running away, there's staying and making a mess of everything, or there is find another solution, which to me is emblematic of what happens with the guns because of the, they have to replace the, the boat's motor in order to keep the boat. Patrick really wants that. So how can they do it? There are no solutions. Okay, here are your dad's guns. If we sell them, we can fix the motor. So to me, that is the setup for the solution to the ending which is, I can't stay here. I'm not capable of functioning under these circumstances, but here's what I can do, and I can make space for you in my life. And I feel like the whole relationship is really well illustrated with the scene at the end with the bouncing ball. When Lee is dropping the ball, he's making mistakes, but they keep trying and it works. The other thing that I would say about this particular film in terms of satisfying ending, the Rotten Tomatoes index is 95%. The audience ratio is 77%. No, it's not going to please everybody. It's a complex and subtle story and a necessary story, I think, because we do have the walking wounded among us and we do expect them to do more than they can. And so to me, this feels like both a cautionary and a prescriptive tale in that be careful what you expect. But if you set expectations at a reasonable level, then everyone does better. And so I think the technical setup of surprising yet inevitable is definitely in the scene about the guns. I think that at bottom, we're really talking about an unsympathetic protagonist with a strong will and a sophisticated state of mind. He doesn't seem like he has a strong will because he's hiding out in Boston, but it's the strong will to hold it together right? And he understands what he can and can't do. So he's got this seemingly impossible challenge. You have to take care of your nephew. And that means being in Manchester by the sea, which is a place that is haunted with ghosts for you. So he recovers his inner moral compass, which to me is that he doesn't do the thing that everyone wants him to do, but which is not the best for him or for Patrick. He makes the selfless choice because it would look better to everyone else if he would just stay and try to tough it out. But it doesn't make sense given who he is. It is not the moral choice to do something you're incapable of doing. So that would be my rebuttal in support of Valerie's proposition that this is a redemption story and that it provides both a surprising yet inevitable ending. I love it, Leslie. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. So I just want to throw something out. 
No, no, go ahead. Okay. Throw so it out, we throw talked it out. about at the beginning, what is an, a surprising but inevitable ending? Right, right. And as I was listening to Kim and Anne, and, and we didn't know what Kim and Anne were going to say really until the last minute. So I was really listening closely to what they were saying here on the podcast. You know, and the point of this this exercise is to really push and pull this element of story to see how it works and, and what works. So you disagreed with the genre choice that Leslie and I came up with. And I know the word satisfying is subjective. And we talked about satisfying not necessarily being popular, which is really important. The writers, and I include myself in this, we really need to think about those things when we're writing a story. What What's our goal here? Are we trying to write the big crowd pleaser, like a Marvel film that we know most of the people will say, rah, rah, our hero won? Or are we trying to get people to think? And so forth. So that's a, a really important point. However, I didn't hear you really argue with the point, with the fact that this is surprising, but inevitable. In fact, I heard Kim a couple of times say, yeah, this really was surprising. And, and also when you guys watched this, you knew that I was pitching it as a surprising, but inevitable ending. So uh, I'm going to ask you both in a minute. Did you then watch the movie through that filter? And were you trying to second guess what the ending is? There's no yep. right or wrong answer. I'm just really curious how you approach yep. that. I wanted to mention that too, because going how you view a movie, what expectations you have going in, or or read a book for that matter, what reviews you've read, um, in this case, what I was supposed to be looking for because you told me. Right. It had a had a definite impact. Yeah, absolutely. There's no way to separate yourself from that. Once the information is there, like I know I'm watching for a surprising but inevitable conclusion, it's not pure anymore. The experience is I did not encounter this movie in a pure state. I will admit that. You, you don't think you could be objective that way, though? I mean, you can try. I mean, we do these things all the time when it comes to, oh, this is a movie about with this genre. It's science, man. It's, it's physics. <laughs> the observer changes the test. They do. You, you can't help it. Schrodinger's cat, man. <laughs> but see, if when someone tells you, watch out for the surprise at the end, it's not a surprise at the end. You're expecting it, right? I mean, you're right, and you know, you bring to a movie your own life experiences, and there are things that just pe just don't resonate with people. I totally get that, and then there's things that cloud your judgment. I get that. I mean, anytime I see a a movie or hear a story about someone going through a, a tragic illness, I have a whole other experience than probably most people, and you know, it's hard to do. But as part of storytelling and part of being an author. I think you can still pull off surprising yet inevitable for the majority of people. And again, I, I think the nuance is for who are we writing for, right? If you're looking at the bell curve and you're like, you want the maximum amount of people that are going to think this is awesome. Yeah, that's one way. Or you want to just write in a niche that's going to satisfy some of your core fans. Core fans. Anne and I talked about this. What does it mean for something, to, you know, surprising yet inevitable and being satisfying? And when we were in Nashville and Sean was talking to us about a story that works, it means it appeals to the fans of the genre, right? Like in order for it to work, it's going to be satisfying to fans of the genre, not satisfying to everyone because stories just aren't going to be. So if you have a core audience that looks at something like this and they want to see real life, they don't want Hollywood happy, right? They want real gut visceral experiences about the hard truth with a capital T of life. And in that way, I think we can look at this and go, okay, I see it and I get yeah. it. And 
that that's how the story works with a capital W, right? And that not everybody gets to say whether or not a story works. I mean, this story works at a lot of different levels. I mean, and I think we'd all agree that it does work. Yeah, I think it does. Absolutely. The real question is, is it a surprising yet inevitable ending? Because that's sort of what we're trying, we're debating here, because that's a very hard thing to get right. You know, for me, it just didn't do that. I think some of the other movies we've seen, uh, Brokeback Mountain and uh, Hurt Locker, in my opinion, were better examples of that. Well, I think you're in the minority. I have to be, with all due respect. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I get it. No, no. That's why we're talking about it. There's a couple of times in the first two seasons when we kind of reference this, right? When we're analyzing a film, we watch it a few times. And the first time, it's just as an audience member without our story grid hats on because we want to take the temperature of the film. We want to get a gut reaction to whether the thing worked or not, whether we liked it or not. And we've, even though, I mean, obviously we were never a hundred percent in agreement. I don't think on any episode. Oh, maybe one. Um, what was the one about the money? Mad money? Mad money. Mad we all money. agree that was bad. <laughs> yeah, we all agree that that was bad. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but that was our gut reaction when we watched it first. And we all had the same gut reaction. So clearly it didn't work. Now, of course, with this one, I had already seen it, which is you know why I pitched it. But I went back to my initial feeling of how did I feel when I watched it as an audience member the first time? What was I expecting to happen? What did I hope was going to happen? Even though Lee is a train wreck of a man whose heart, his heart is so broken that hours breaks for him and for Randy's and for the everyone. But we're still hoping upon hope that he's going to get it together somehow. And he's going to be the guardian for Patrick. And Kim identified a really key scene, the, the selling of the guns to get the secondhand motor. And she was absolutely right. Our hearts soar in that scene because we're thinking, oh, yay. Oh, yay. Lee is really trying. Well, I mean, he has tried up to this point, but fallen flat on his face. And this is the first glimmer where we say, oh, he might actually get it together. We could have the happy ending that we desperately want for these characters. But at the end, even though it takes a couple of days after this film, because it's emotionally exhausting, it really is. So you need a, you need sort of to let it percolate for a couple of days, I think, to go back and then look at it and say, yeah, but that would not have been true to who he is if he had stayed. It would have been... Painting the Hollywood ending on the end and blah, blah. Well, I don't, I don't think you need a Hollywood ending in this. I mean, again, to me, it wasn't surprising that he was – I mean, it just literally, I'm like, as soon as, as soon as you figure out the reason why he left Manchester was because of this tragedy that he feels responsible for. As soon as that happens for me, I'm kind of like, oh, this guy is just never going to get his shit together. Even the scene where he's looking at the guns – I just, I didn't think he was ever going to commit suicide again. I, I think we've already gone through the whole story knowing that he is past taking his own life. He's just going to suffer. And he thinks he needs to suffer for all of eternity for what he did. And he's never going to redeem himself. And he's never going to be okay with the accident that he helped cause and that the three, his, you know, killing his three young kids. I just didn't see the surprise at the end. I'm like, yeah, I knew he'd do that. I mean, I didn't, I didn't particularly care for the movie so much. And I think partly is because of the, of the subject matter and my, my mental state uh, right now. 
And maybe that's how you got to come to it. Um, sometimes you're just in a different mood. But having lost uh, someone very close to me last year, I just just doesn't. I don't know. I I don't think it was surprising yet inevitable. I would add just one clarification, just to feel like I've done some due diligence, and it, it's that when we say that Lee never gets his act together by the end, I would really disagree with that. And I know it's very subtle and I know it's not what we would hope for him to do, but he does make a conscious choice at the end. Whereas in the beginning, he's willy nilly fighting people and that kind of thing. And so this idea that there's an objective of having one's act together, I would say is not I would just caution personally and in stories against yeah, that. Really good Agreed. Point. I mean, good point. He does, albeit minorly, I think, evolve into a, a better place, but I don't, it just wasn't satisfying. But that's not the test for a redemption plot anyway, right? You know, it's, it's at the end of the film, he makes a conscious choice to put someone else's need ahead of his own. I truly think that if he was capable of being... Patrick's guardian, he would be Patrick's guardian. But he has put Patrick's needs ahead of his own. I think leaving Patrick behind in Manchester was absolutely not the thing he wanted to do. But through the course of the movie, you see him trying to make it work, to come up with a short-term solution while he figures out a long-term solution. It's not really until he has that second accident where he nearly starts a fire for a second time and he has the dream about his daughter saying, Daddy, we're burning. Like, I mean, holy Hannah, right? That's when he makes this decision that says, you know, I can't do this. This is not in Patrick's best interest, which is exactly to Leslie's point that he does make a conscious choice at the end. And that is when I believe he redeems himself. He puts Patrick's need ahead of his own. And if you look at the global spectrum of value for a redemption plot, that's what it is, right? Fair point. Fair point. So Fair point. We had one more Question, which is how do writers create an ending that is surprising but inevitable? For me, this is all about setting up and paying off. And we get a lot of questions here at StoryGrid about setups and payoffs. So the key is that for a surprising but inevitable ending is that one, the audience doesn't see it coming. And two, when the audience reflects on the ending, they realize that the story couldn't really have ended any other way or shouldn't really have ended any other way that any other ending wouldn't have been true to the story or the protagonist. And I think that much we can agree on, <laughs> I think, <laughs> for this film. So when you're setting up and paying off, it's all the setups are the little breadcrumbs and the clues that are sprinkled throughout the story that the viewer or the reader doesn't even necessarily pick up on until they know the ending. And then they can see the chain of events that led them there. Um, what would the rest of you guys say to that? I would say that Anne has an excellent article on setups and payoffs, a link to which will be in the show notes. Thank you. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Perfect. Yeah. That's awesome. That's all right. So we'll leave. Yes. We'll leave this. Yes. Yes. Read that. We'll put that in the show notes for sure. <laughs> uh, Sorry, Anne. I forgot. <laughs> oh, no. That's all right. Okay. So when you're watching Manchester by the Sea, there's a lot of material in here. A couple of other things that you can keep your eye on is the use of exposition as ammunition, because there's a ton of backstory in the film. Innovating the genre, which I still think is redemption, but they also innovate the love story subplot in there. 
Also very interestingly is Lee's refusal to choose at the crisis question. So you might want to have a look at that and try and figure out why he's doing that and how that adds to the story. Also, there's a mirror in the beginning hook crisis with the ending payoff crisis. There's also excellent use of subtext and metaphor and a character foil in Patrick's mother who was also broken. I'd also say that this movie is an excellent example of nonlinear storytelling. It's masterfully handled. Uh, that goes back to the exposition as ammunition because pieces from the past are revealed as needed in a nonlinear fashion. Something to look for. For sure. I mean, that's the best part of the movie, in my opinion, and I think a master's class on how to do it. I like that part of it a lot. So thanks, everyone, for the wonderful debate. If you have questions about the surprising but inevitable conclusion or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT or leave us a voice message on the hotline, which is over at StoryGrid.com slash resources. Click on the Editor Roundtable podcast and you can record your question. So this week, we have our question from Faye White commenting on our Gone Girl episode, wondering if some of the story structure challenges, no distinct hero at the mercy of the villain, might have been less distinctive if Gillian Flynn hadn't written the screenplay as well as the novel. I'll take that one. We can only speculate, of course, because we don't know what she was thinking, but Gillian Flynn has done some additional screenwriting TV and one other movie since Gone Girl, and I haven't seen them, so I can't compare. But the screenplay as filmed did work for a lot of people, as did the book, at least in part, because it did innovate on the genre. And maybe one of the ways she innovated was to decide not to have a strong hero at the mercy of the villain scene. But it's also possible that as a novelist, she isn't really well trained in you know Robert McKee, Sean Coyne style uh, story structure. So she may not have consciously chosen to leave out that precise convention or obligatory scene for the thriller genre, but she did leave it out. And I think the bottom line is we can't know what her intentions were or what her training is necessarily, but for a lot of people, the story really did work in spite of that lack. Thanks, Anne. Well, that wraps it up for this week. Great discussion, everyone. Thank you, Anne, Kim, Leslie, and Valerie for your excellent editorial insights into Manchester by the Sea. We hope this new discussion format that we're kind of working on uh, helps you write a better, surprising, but inevitable conclusion to your novel or short story, or maybe even the screenplay. You can find the show notes at storygrid.com slash resources. If you're interested in hiring a certified StoryGrid editor or would like to find out more about what we do, visit storygrid.com slash editing. You want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. Join us next time when we find out whether Kim can make the case that the 2014 animated adventure Song of the Sea is a great example of both the hero's journey and the virgin's promise. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.